So if you have your Bibles, please open to Luke chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible, um, the lovely David Shannon will uh, bring to you purple, uh, pink, and lime green paisley colored Bibles uh, for you to be distracted by during the entire gathering uh, because the colors are so loud. But they were $5 and that's what we get. So um, <laughs> that's how we roll. Uh, so go ahead, and if you don't have a Bible, and that is the Bible you have, and you really like the color, and you don't have one, then take it with you, because that's also why we get it, um, and we'll always know whether or not you bring it, because it's purple. Um, Luke chapter 4, beginning verse 16. Now I want to offer a revisit, if you will, just a revisit of how the story has gone in Luke's gospel. We won't do this every week because it'll get too much, but we need to keep doing it as much as we can. The plot line is this. Luke begins his gospel by detailing the birth narrative of Jesus. He emphasizes that Jesus is God's manifestation of bringing to fulfillment the promises he made to Israel that Jesus is God made flesh and Jesus is God's gift to the world through himself, of fulfilling all the promises he made to Israel through what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. And he even mentions that in chapter 1. He mentions the forerunner that he promised, John the Baptist, who would prepare the way for Jesus to come, that Jesus would be the Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word for what? King. Just like Pharaoh's the Egyptian word for king, Caesar's the uh, Roman word for king, Messiah, literally meaning anointed one. Anointed one is a phrase used primarily for, within that context, kings. And so in Hebrew culture, so Jesus is the Messiah. That means he is the king of Israel. He is what scripture has promised. He's what scripture has sought to uh, uncover. He comes and Luke makes great pains. Uh, it goes to great pain to, to help us see this. He comes from the house of David, which is a kingly lineage, a royal lineage. And this is the one that everyone has been waiting for. And so Jesus, after years of study and preparation, comes to the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, a baptized man. And he takes the scroll, it says in the scriptures, in beginning verse 16, and he opens it to what is a restorative discourse, meaning he opens it to the Hebrew scriptures, specifically Isaiah 61, that speaks of how God through his Messiah, is going to restore all things and how he's going to use a restored people to restore all things. That's Isaiah 61. So Jesus, in your Bibles, in my Bible, in Luke 4, verse 16, he steps up to the synagogue, he steps up to the pulpit, he opens a scroll of Isaiah, it's specifically Isaiah 61, and he simply reads it and says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me which means, really, Jesus is about to preach like an inspired man. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set free the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Which is another way of Jesus saying to proclaim jubilee. We'll talk about that next week. Now, before we go any further, I need you to know, we're going to be in Luke chapter 4 for at least three weeks together. Next week, we're going to have a little more discussion where we're going to interact with each other. The week after, we're going to have a lot of interaction and discussion. We're going to wrap it up. Today, what I want to do, church, is I want to give you the depth. I want to give you the context. How we read our Bibles matters. So here's the thing. 
If you're looking for a, quote, application, here's your application for the day. I'll give it to you on the front end. Today's message is about how you see. How you see the world, how you see yourself, how I see the church, how I see my neighbor, how I see my country, how I see the globe, how I see the universe. Today's message is asking you and me to rethink how we see. It's about eyes and ideas. Because how we see begins to form the thoughts, and our thoughts begin to form our actions. A lot of times our thoughts also color how we see, which also dictates our actions. It goes either way. So today is about eyes and ideas. That's going to be your take home. So we're going to get deep into the text, so please follow along the best you can, and we'll, uh, we'll pray that we honor the Lord with this scripture. So Isaiah 61 is where Jesus begins in this synagogue moment. And in Isaiah 61, which I've got listed here, which we're going to read, it's all about this Messiah and this restored people. And this is, this is really Isaiah offering a little poetic prophecy. And you're going to notice that Jesus quotes it verse for verse just about in his sermon. And by the way, this sermon that Jesus gives in the synagogue is indeed Jesus' first sermon. So in Luke 4, you're listening to Jesus' first sermon. So if he's going to preach his first sermon, you would think, this is it, man. This is his great descriptor. This is his great message of what he's going to be about. And he doesn't start off with a topical sermon. He doesn't start off with a little conversation and a joke of an illustration. He gets to work, opens the scroll of Isaiah chapter 61 and says, the Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he puts a period at the end of that sentence, but Isaiah keeps going. And the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty, Instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning. And splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord God to glorify Him. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers will stand and feed your flocks, and foreigners will be your plowmen, and vine dressers, both you will be called, but you will be called the Lord's priests. They will speak of you as ministers of our God. You will eat of the wealth of the nations, and you will boast in their riches, because your shame was double, and they cried out, Disgrace is their portion, therefore they will possess double in their land, and eternal joy will be theirs. For I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery and injustice. I will faithfully reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them, these people he's restoring. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their posterity among the peoples. All who see them will recognize that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I greatly rejoice in the Lord. I exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness as a groom wears a turban and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth produces its growth and as a garden enables what is sown to spring up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before 
the nations. When Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 as his first sermon, every hearer is going to remember this text. And they're going to hear Jesus say that the Spirit of the Lord is on him to completely reorder society as they know it. And in that reordering or reframing or redefining of society, the people that live that way, the people that are born from that society, who make up that society, will be a people whose ashes will be beauty, whose mourning will, be, will turn to dancing because they'll have something to dance about now. Those people will not just do it for themselves, though. Those people will set out for the work of, look, verse 4, rebuilding what has been abandoned, ancient ruins. Restoring what has been devastated. And renewing what has been ruined for many generations. You see that? It's the people that this king up here is going to create. That's why it says they will. It doesn't say I will, it says they will. There's a difference. They will do that because they will be able to because of what I am doing, he says. If you ever wonder what the church might look like, or if you ever needed a descriptor of the church, here you go. But it's Old Testament bread. Well, Jesus lived underneath that law and decided that this scripture was so accurate a picture of the people that God wanted to create through his inbreaking kingdom and king that his first sermon was based upon this text. See, Jesus quotes the first three verses and draws upon a larger picture in Isaiah and elsewhere throughout the old scriptures that speak of God fulfilling his promises to Israel. Jesus says, if you notice in your text in Luke 4, Jesus says, and today, what does it say? This scripture right here is what? Fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus isn't saying that this is done. Because the work of rebuilding, renewing, restoring, and, and, and mourning to dancing, and ashes to beauty hasn't happened at a sermon. It doesn't happen in a sermon church. We know that. It happens when the people start living the life, when they start living from the restored and fulfilled promise to become a people who do this. Jesus is saying, essentially, what he is saying is this is my vision. This is a vision of a new humanity, of a new people, of a new society, adequate and, and, and perfect enough to live in the new world that God is creating. Jesus, in his first sermon, offers not only a vision of his ministry, but a vision of a new way of doing things in society that has been ushered in by the kingdom of God. This is a new way of doing life, church. Restoring and renewing and rebuilding. Not tearing down, deconstructing, and criticizing. A new way. See, God's grace in this story, in Jesus' sermon, 
God's grace is for everyone as the kingdom of God is breaking in. The poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed, all are welcome to come to the most gracious host as there's a place for them in God's life. And if that isn't enough, if what Jesus is saying isn't enough, that there's place for everyone there, specifically these people, these categories of people, and you've got to think, you've got to remember that Jesus chose these categories of people in this text to communicate what God is doing in the world through Jesus. And as if that's not enough, he says, in the year of the Lord's favor has come, which is a reference to Jubilee. And we'll talk about Jubilee because it was an Old Testament ideal where on the 50th year, God's people forgave all debts completely, completely all debts and returned. In Jubilee, they returned land that they bought from families back to the original families. Jubilee was a leveling agent for the people of God. It made all things level where everybody had a new chance to live again. We'll talk more about that next week, but Jesus says, and the year of the Lord's Jubilee is happening. Man, you got to think about that. That right there is alone. That alone is worth really contemplating in terms of society and how we live life in this world. The ground is leveled, and there's a new world that has come, and it's a new beginning. This is an inspired message with, from an inspired man with a prophetic proclamation and a prophetic imagination because what Jesus is doing is offering a new vision of a new society for a new world, a world where God's promised kingdom has broken in. And so we could easily read over that and say, I know that, and it not motivate us and stir us like it should because this, this message here, is my favorite sermon in all of Scripture, personally. It lights the fire in my heart. Well, the problem is it doesn't always do that for people. If you look at your text in Luke 4, beginning verse 22, see, Luke goes on to tell us that the hearers were astonished because the message was shocking. But the crucial part of the text comes now. It comes after the actual sermon because that's usually how it works when you preach. See, everybody kind of listens. It's not until after the sermon that people begin to criticize and complain. <laughs> and, and that same thing happened with Jesus. So he preaches the sermon, and look at what it says. I mean, they want him to do magic tricks. Look, verse 22. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, yet they said, well, isn't this Joseph's son? I mean, they were kind of like, man, this, this Jesus is bringing the heat. Drop the mic, preaching the sermon. That was great. But um, he made some pretty big claims. And, and isn't this just Joseph's son, the son of a carpenter? I mean, can he, can he do that? Well, Jesus knowing that his hearers are not hearing him clearly, despite the fact that he was profoundly clear. He knows they're not hearing him clearly because we hearers like to hear what we hear. They began to argue with Jesus in their gut. And then they began to argue with Jesus publicly. Which is the, isn't this Joseph's son? So Jesus says to them, no doubt you'll quote this proverb to me. No doubt you all have something to say about what I just said, and you're going to argue with me, and you're going to say to me, verse 23, doctor, heal yourself. 
So all we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your own hometown also. In other words, Jesus is saying, no doubt you're all going to say, hey boy, start with healing in your own backyard. Do something. Show us this is what you can do. And really, I've been told that before when I would talk about AIDS orphans in Africa. I would have people come up to me and say, well, don't we have enough orphans here to talk about? I mean, shouldn't we be taking care of the ones in our own backyard? My question to you is, why is it an either-or proposition when it's clearly an and-both? I think it's just a cop-out by many of us because we're not doing either. We're not doing either, some of us. But we got an opinion about it. They had an opinion about what Jesus had to say. Jesus called the opinion out for him. And so then he sets off to his own defense. Now this is the important part of the text. So stay with me. Because in his defense, Jesus turns their minds to two of the most significant prophets in Israel's history. In his own defense, of his own words. He's still defending what he said. Because what he said was scandalous, man. What he said is going to shake the very fabric of society when the poor, the captive, the oppressed, and all are welcomed into what God is doing in the world. That is going to shake the fabric of society because it speaks to Israel's elitism. It speaks to Israelite exceptionalism. Yeah. And they don't like that. And so Jesus has to defend it. And so to do that, he calls back to their own history, to two of their major prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And he doesn't tell them the good parts. He tells them the part that gives everybody heartburn. And so I want you to see this so you can see what Jesus is subversively, subversively saying about his own ministry. Verse 24, he also said to them, so he continued on, he didn't take a breath, I assure you, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly, listen to this now, but I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's day when the sky was shut up for three years and six months and while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but instead a widow in Zarephath, in Sidon. Yet Oh, and in the prophet Elisha's time, verse 27, there were many in Israel who had serious skin diseases, yet not one of them was healed, only Naaman the Syrian. So now we read over that and we think, oh, look at Jesus telling a story. But whoa, wait a minute, this is big what he's saying. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying Elijah could have healed any widow in his own backyard, any Israelite widow, but God sent Elijah to not heal a widow that was Jew, but to heal a widow that was Gentile. And Elisha could have healed any number of any available lepers in Israel. But instead of healing the lepers in his own Israelite descendant backyard, God commanded him to heal the enemy army's commander. God is healing and choosing, once again, the wrong people. 
And in doing so, see, Jesus, in this comeback, not only identifies himself as a prophet when he uses the prophet's story, but he also, in his identification with Elijah and Elisha, is letting them know that his ministry is going to look the same. He's taking up their mantle, taking up their ministry. And when Jesus points back, church, when he points back to Elijah and Elijah, Jesus, Jesus undercuts the dominant powers of his day, the dominant powers of his current day that are capable of inflicting violence and oppression. Two dominant powers that even today, in 2014, is still capable, both in America, beginning in Williamsburg, all the way out into the east, into what we see on television all day. The two dominant powers that still have a way of inflicting violence, whether emotionally or physically, and oppression, whether emotionally, physically, or spiritually, and that are these. Ethnic power and religious superiority. Ethnic superiority and religious superiority. The two dominant powers that inflict the violence and oppression all over the place. Ethnic superiority that says, I am Caucasian, American, and you're the other, and therefore I'm better than you. Because the Israelites had that problem. The Israelites had the mentality of, I'm Israelite, I'm chosen of God, I'm better than the rest of the world. We're better than the rest of the world. We're exceptional. Far more exceptional than the rest. Listen to the story. Listen to the context. Read your Bibles. Please, I invite you. See what he's saying. See what he's doing. That's why he chooses this part of the narrative. It's scandalous that Elijah and Elisha did what they were not supposed to do that proved that God was saving once again the wrong people. But then there's the religious superiority that comes along with it too. The Israelites, hey, we're the true and only God. The Gentiles, that widow, she, she doesn't worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by the way, she didn't. And certainly Naaman, the commander of the enemy army, the whole reason he was killing God's people is they didn't believe in God. What's God doing saving him? Religious superiority still exists. I believe in the one true God. You don't. I've got it figured out. You don't. You think it through. It's got our world in a mess. Among the many different things. Is this notion of ethnic and religious superiority. I've said it a thousand times and I'll keep saying it. It's ethnic superiority that allowed Christians in the 60s in America to go to church, eat at the table, sing songs of praise, and leave hating another human being because the color of their skin was different. So please don't sit here and think that this isn't for us. We could be blinded in the ignorance of our own superior postures over other people think we're okay, just to realize one day by the grace of God, we're not. And this could be a day where you and I realize God has a lot of work to do in us. So Jesus, in quoting Elisha and Elijah's story, in light of what he's proclaiming in Luke 4, subverts, flips upside down, 
the old familiar way of doing things in society along with its delusions of peace and prosperity and it infuriates the hearers. And if you don't think it infuriates the hearers because Yahweh is rescuing, rescuing the wrong people again, then read verse 29, what does it say? What do they want to do with Jesus? Throw him off a cliff. That's why. Nobody walked away chest bumping, high five, and saying, that was an awesome sermon, Jesus. I hope that's online. He ticked them off. And he wanted to throw them off the cliff. Because what he had to say was that scandalous. It was that offensive. It was socially offensive, it was politically offensive, it was religiously offensive, it was ethnically offensive, it was offensive on every conceivable possibility. And sadly, I wonder if many Christians would do the same. If Jesus stepped into our church buildings and into our pulpits, let's be humble and honest, and if he said this message and we heard it clearly, which still shocks us at times, it may be stirring some of you up and infuriating some of us right now. Wouldn't we probably, I mean, we would never do, we would say we'd never do this, but I see churches, you've seen churches, we've even done it, where we're willing to throw Jesus off a cliff because what Jesus has to say doesn't align with the way I want to live my life, and it doesn't align with the way society normally works. It's not how we do it around here, boys. And we just want to ask him to leave. That's not what he's really saying. And that's what we've done with this particular text. We've over-spiritualized this text. Luke chapter 4. In our desperate response to deal with the difference that God is creating inside of us, the heart, we over-spiritualize it. We say, well, no, 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 friend. No. Now, Jesus, he's really going to bring good news to the spiritually poor. And he's, gonna, he's going to heal the spiritually brokenhearted. He's going to proclaim spiritual liberty to the spiritually captive. And he's going to give sight to those who are spiritually blind. And we settle with that translation and interpretation as if that's the way it actually works. But that in no way contextually within the interpretation of the Scriptures as a historical event that really did happen with a real God named Jesus who came in and did this. There's no way that we are allowed to settle with an over-spiritualized version of this sermon limiting it to only a spiritual meaning. It is a both and, not an either or. He meant it spiritually and we can bet, doggone sure, he meant it literally. But the reality of it is, we need our clean categories in our systems that allow us to wield power and control over others because they help us define who's in and who's out. We need those categories in society to know how to function in our society and to do things in our world. We need check boxes so we can know how to separate and how to function according to the rules of the world. But the tragedy of this is if we receive the literal dimension of Jesus' sermon as well as the spiritual dimension, then we discover that the way we do things in our society is actually dysfunction, and it's the wrong way to do things. It is doing things in the way of the old age, which we've talked about for three weeks, that is passing away as God through Jesus Christ as Lord of the universe and King of Israel, which is what makes him Lord of the universe, is doing in this new people that he's created that he said would restore, rebuild, and renew. And so we find it easier to throw the literal reading of Jesus' sermon over the cliff and settle for an over-spiritualized version that lets us off the hook. Because if we take Jesus literally, literally all of a sudden the community of God gets messy. 
And we like our clean, decent, and in order churches. We like our clean, decent, and in order lives. Don't mess with the Sunday gathering and don't mess with the people I've known for 45 years. And the reality of it is it's not my or your choice to make. It just isn't. Jesus is senior pastor and he's king. Our job is to wrestle with what he's doing and to follow him, obey him, and trust him with the consequences. Yeah, my kids are going to be safe, or are they going to be safe, or, you know, all these different things. I get all that. Yeah, my, my wife, is she going to be safe, or my son going to be safe, or, or yeah, or, or is it going to smell bad in here, or yeah, or are we going to move the chairs, or are we going to have to get new chairs, or are we going to have to move somewhere else, or are we going to have to do this or do that, or are we going to have to move the table or move a mic, or are we going to have to put a mic up, or are we going to have to have a guitar, or are we going to have to have a piano, or are we going to have to watch them wear those clothes, or are we going to have to have those kind I don't know. Yeah, yes, 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 and yes, I guess. If that's what God calls us to do. Are not, then? I mean, are not? I mean, I'm concerned with where the world is going. I'm concerned with where our country's headed. I've got kids. But I've got to decide... If I live in a theocracy first or a democracy first? If I live in a democracy first, then the state of my country dictates every aspect of my life. But if I live in a theocracy first, a theocracy means that Jesus is Lord above all things. Then I remember that if all other kingdoms fail, there will be one kingdom that never does. One kingdom that stands the test of time. And then I'm forced to decide how I'm going to see the world. And if I as a Christian live in accordance to the fear of the world, then what will happen is I will not renew, rebuild, or restore. I will tear down and deconstruct and criticize other people who don't see it the way I do. And I will get irritated and bent out of shape over it. And if it happens in the confines of a church, I'll leave it. And I'll go on living the way I want to do in that church, I believe, is the modern-day equivalent of throwing, wanting to throw Jesus over a cliff. Because what he has to say is too offensive and too scandalous and at times too scary and most of the time too messy for me to do it any other way. I need to do it the way that's simple and manageable to me. And the tragedy is many of us have grown up in church experiences where this has never been messed with. And so it explains why many of us are so uncomfortable with it all. But we can say the same thing that Jesus said in the beginning of his sermon. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. If you're a baptized believer, no matter the fears and insecurities that surround you, the Spirit of the Lord is on you. 
The power of God is inside of us. I may not feel free, but I am declared free. And I have been anointed by God as you. And now we have become known as ministers of our God and the Lord's priests to the world to say to the world that all who are burdened can come and find freedom in Jesus. That all who are broken physically, emotionally, and spiritually in its most profound way can find community, renew, rebuild, restore, can find hope. You can be a part of life with us. That is what we're called to do. There's no other way to negotiate that. If we're going to be the church that Jesus built, the church that he prophetically spoke to that said, on this day, that has begun. And it's going to be messy. And it's going to be hard. And here's the worst part. And I'll close with this. Is when we Christians are only concerned about being served. Then it goes to say, of course then. We're going to be disheartened and disgruntled with the way things are in the kingdom of God. And I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about, we've got people, I'm not talking about those of us who serve in every aspect of the church events and activities. That, that's not the service that we're even called to in Scripture, by the way. God didn't say, thou shalt be um, a Bible class teacher. Serving one another happens Monday through Sunday. And so when one Christian is concerned and self-involved to the degree that I just want to be served by you, then when you don't serve me right or serve me well, I get irritated and upset with you. Or when I don't feel the church is serving me the way the church should serve me, and it's not acting the way it should act and meeting the way it should meet and doing what it should do, then obviously I get very disgruntled and very bothered and bent out of shape. Sometimes for good reasons and sometimes for not. Which is why the Bible says over 56 times one another phrases. Because the idea is not that I should be served by David, but that I should serve David. And then David should not worry about being served. David should serve others. So if I serve David because I'm serving one another, and David serves me because he's serving one another, then what happens to both me and David? We're both being served. But if David decides to take a different posture or I decide to take a different posture that expects David to serve me, then I'm a consumer of goods and services. And when it's not what I want, I will not go about renewing, rebuilding, and restoring. I will go about tearing down, deconstructing, and criticizing. And it happens in the world. It's the way the world works, but that's so, not so with the kingdom of God. And church, the reason I mention children a lot this morning is because obviously it's fresh on my mind. Because I constantly think about what world am I creating for my children. And then when I think about church, I think about what world are we creating as Christians for our children. And will we as a church look anything like the world that Jesus said he created? Will it look like a world where we proclaim good news to the poor? 
freedom to the captive, and sight to the blind. And as our world, and please don't lose me on this, as our world gets increasingly dangerous, and that danger pushes against the notion of Christian hospitality, pushes against the notion of loving neighbor as self, pushes against the notion of receiving those that society has deemed are unsafe or unworthy. We are confronted with how we're going to live our lives. We're confronted with what we're going to do and how we're going to respond. And our response is going to be dictated by how we see it. The world's not going to get any safer. And people are going to get sicker. And they're still going to need the great physician. And we as a people have been given the great physician and have been healed and are being healed. And we are called by our God to demonstrate a different way of life for the world to see so that the world will take note and remember that we are different because we have a different king. And if we are, our world will get incredibly messy and difficult, but we will know. We will know Jesus. We will know him. We will, God knows we will need him. Because I need Jesus. I need the Lord to cut away at the lunacy in my life. I need the Lord to cut away at the fears and insecurities and anxieties of my own heart. I need the Lord to kill away, kill the prejudices and the biases and the pride and the ego of my life. And I need the Lord. And my, my need for the Lord is never made more apparent than when I am pressing into the kind of life He wants me to live. When I would just rather, God knows, I would just rather not deal with it. I would rather not deal with it. I want to spiritualize it and just not deal with it in my life. But then I fail to see Jesus. Let us be a church that sees Jesus. You be a Christian that sees Jesus. Because the Spirit of the Lord is on you. And you have power, man. You have power. Surrender to the power.